Let's pray again. Our Father, as we look into this portion of your word, we know that there is some powerful insights that help us understand you and the greatness of your mercy, the sovereignty of your grace, and the wonders of your compassionate heart for the lost. And Lord, we know there are also tremendously challenging insights for those of us who are your followers to be open to being led into situations where we can bring the good news of Christ to those who perhaps um, we don't know or don't know them well, but that you've been preparing. And so, Father, uh, may this portion of your word be applied by your spirit to our hearts in such a way that we would honor Christ and that we would be challenged to serve him and be on mission every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just want to do a quick review of the theme verse for Acts. And, you know, we've talked about this a number of times. So this is in the Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we read, you shall, be, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And now say it with me. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Right? Let's say it together again. You shall be my witnesses in do it with your fist now, it's two fists, Jerusalem and then a circle and all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Thank you. All right, very good. So that's the general outline. And as you know that verse in Acts 1.8, you are going to follow how that unfolds within the book that Luke composed uh, here that we've been studying for the last few weeks. Now, what I'd like to notice this morning is that we find further insight as the results of this idea of the moving out of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. It's already begun to affect the area there of Judea. It's already begun now to affect Samaria. We saw that in previous weeks in Acts chapter 8. And so today we're going to see how the gospel is going to be pushing even further in a way that helps us see what God's intention is. For, his evangel for the evangelization of the world really is. Now, you'll notice in this text, I'm convinced that we find a tension going on here in Acts chapter 8. A tension that, in a sense, on the one hand, we can affirm that God and the evangelization, evangelization of the world, that is Jesus' work to do through the Spirit of God. And we see that in Acts, do we not? We see Jesus is doing things through his spirit that had not been done before. The spirit of God was definitely at work. Then that work was also being carried out, on the other hand, through Jesus' disciples. So both divine and human roles and responsibilities are in play in this dramatic drama of evangelism and the uh, drama of redemption. Now, I, I had some fancy quotes from this book, which I would commend to you to read at some point by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's a classic. It is very helpful, filled with all sorts of biblical insights. But I'm not going to read the fancy quotes because it really takes some careful reading. I don't have them in front of you. 
but it's well worth some of his points. Here's what I'd like to do. In the latter part of this chapter, chapter 8 of Acts, I believe it is a marvelous example of this mystery of both the human and the divine playing itself out in this conversation with a very unlikely convert in a very unlikely way. And the result of this encounter, divine, divinely ordained encounter, is much joy for the converted man, a much greater expansion of the gospel witness to the uttermost part of the earth. I'll explain that in just a moment. And ultimately would say the result is much glory to God. So let's look at now the first of the two main points we have to look at here. Let's look at the human characters and consider them as we look through the text. And then in the second point, we'll look at the divine character. But in the human characters, we have a nameless worshiper who humbly receives the witness of Jesus in the word. And we also find, in terms of the human characters, a submissive, obedient witness in the person of Philip, who was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Let's first of all then think about this man who's walking, who's traveling along the road, uh, the wealthy official. Now in the first century, citizens at that time enjoyed a network of excellent roads that had been constructed by the Romans, enabling people of that time to travel great distances. Now, my wife and I just came back from our vacation to visit our children and their spouses in the Chicagoland area and the southern part of Illinois, and it was a 2,000-mile <laughs> drive in this big loop we made, and we're thankful for it. But think about this particular account because we're introduced to a person who is traveling in chapter 8, verse 27, and the traveler, interestingly enough, is a wealthy black African man from the region called, at that time, Ethiopia. Now, when you hear Ethiopia, we're, we're not to associate it with today's political country of Ethiopia. That's not what they had in mind, because at that time, the country was not known for that in that way. What we're talking about is the biblical term Cush, C-U-S-H, which was also used in the Old Testament. It's the northern part of the Nile River territory, also known as today the country of Sudan and the country of South Sudan. Isn't that interesting? Here's this man. His name is not recorded for us. It never is mentioned, but he is clearly a well-to-do gentleman. How do you know, you say? Well, in that time, if you were traveling as a person who was rather poor or you didn't have much resources, you would get along walking, and many people did. If you were a person who was a soldier, you would get along traveling by horse. If you were a person who was rather uh, pretty decent means, you would oftentimes maybe ride a donkey. But this man was riding in style. He was riding in, I think it's more than just a chariot, because he can sit down in it. He welcomes somebody up into it, and he's reading. And so I think he's a man who's probably more like a carriage would be a better word. And he is traveling most likely with an entourage. 
This guy is making a statement. He travels in luxury. And how far has he been traveling? Well, it's a long way. I'll tell you that in just a second. But we know that he is a man of well means because he describes himself as serving in this rather exclusive treasury position for the government there of that land, what they call at the time, Cush or the Ethiopia area. And one commentator describes him as the chief treasurer of a kingdom wealthy from iron smelting, gold mining, and extensive trade. And he could pretty much buy whatever he wanted. This man was loaded, and the way he traveled communicated that. He was very successful from a worldly standpoint. But he's yearning for something more than money can buy. He is longing for, he is desiring to know the true and the living God. He's yearning for eternal significance. And we find him now, picking up the story here as Luke records it, we find him on the second half of this very long journey. And I, the more I've thought about this, I could be wrong in my calculations. I'm estimating here. I just calculated it as a 1,500 miles each way. Now, he's not traveling 70 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour, whatever it is, by way of automobile. He's traveling slowly from the area of the northern Nile River area of Africa. And he's traveled from his homeland to go to Jerusalem to worship. Now, that's fascinating that he would do that. It, it, it took him a long time, I'm sure. And some have suggested that he was most likely a person who was a God-fearer, which would mean that he was a person who longed to know God, but thus far had not become a Jewish convert. And the reason possibly may be because he was unable to be circumcised. And the reason he was unable to be circumcised is because of some form of abnormal sexual anatomy. I'll just leave it at that. But due to the fact that he was a eunuch, according to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, he was not permitted to enter into the temple. He is not allowed to come into the holy place of worship as according to God's regulations. And here is this man who, as he heads home, was perhaps wondering to himself, what hope is there for a man who knows that there is a creator, who knows that there is a God who has made all things, but he lacks the qualifications to approach this true God in the privilege of worship. And somehow in his travels, perhaps while he's in Jerusalem, in his curiosity, he obtains and purchases a rather rare copy of the scroll of Isaiah. They didn't have books at that time. They had scrolls, and some, someone had very carefully, meticulously, a scribe had copied this book of Isaiah in a scroll. And here he is. He's got this thing in his hand. And it's not clear how much of the book of Isaiah he has written, he has read. We're not told, but I would think that he's been reading this thing for a while. I think he's looking for answers. 
And take your Bible just for a second and find Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56. And I'd like to read these interesting verses because perhaps he has read these and he has walked away and realized maybe there is hope for a person like me, a eunuch. Isaiah 56, verse 3, we read, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now, what would be the significance of calling someone a dry tree? Most likely, I think it means a, a, a piece of dead wood that will eventually be just chopped up and thrown away or burned or just get rid of it. It's not going to last. Behold, I am, I am a dry tree. But don't let him say that. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them, I will give in my house uh, within my walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Now, it's possible, I'm just conjecturing here, it doesn't say he read that, but I'm wondering, that's not too, many, not too far from where he was reading in Isaiah. Here's a promise of grace for a person like this, saying you will be included among the people of God and given privileges beyond your imagination. Now, considering the fact that the Jewish religious leaders of that day that possibly this wealthy traveler would have encountered when he's back in Jerusalem, the same wealthy religious leaders who had put Jesus to death and had washed their hands of him and who were just going back to the fact that we're just going to keep these regulations, we're going to keep these laws, and all we have is rules. Legalistic rule-keeping is all that the, much of uh, that time of Jew Judaism entailed. He would have come back from that kind of experience saying what? I've just gotten reminded of a long list of constant reminders that I'm never going to measure up. There's never going to be hope for me to ever get access to God. And praise be to God for orchestrating this amazing encounter with a fellow by the name of Philip, Philip the Evangelist. Here Philip meets up with this wealthy traveler, on his way home in what would be called the Southwest Highway toward Egypt. And after a brief exchange, this wealthy official admitted that he did not understand what he had been reading aloud from this book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Now, as I thought about that statement, admitting that he doesn't understand what he's been reading, how many people are willing to humble themselves and admit that number one, they need God. And number two, how many people are willing to admit that they also need help in understanding the Word of God? Many people will read the Word of God and say, oh, I can't understand this. I give up. They just dismiss it. They just say, well, there's, this is beyond understanding. There's nothing here for me. But this man is yearning to understand the, the Scriptures. And so this rich African man was told clearly by Philip in part of what I'm assuming would have been his message that he gave him, something to the effect of Jesus 
was the one who was sent from God, who lived a perfect law-abiding life, who laid down his life on that cross, suffering the punishment that we deserve for breaking God's righteous commands. It is Jesus who was the servant of God, spoken of here in Isaiah 53. It is Jesus who was the one who was separated from God so that we might draw close to God. Jesus himself bore the sin of many, the text there says in Isaiah 53, so that many might what? Be forgiven and enjoy God's favor. Look at verse 37 of Acts 8. Now, some of your translations will have this in parenthesis. Some of your translations will have a little note at the bottom. Some of your translations will have no note at all and just leaves it in there. But what happened in this verse 37 is that it was added in in later manuscripts as we've compared all of the manuscripts that have been found of this particular text of Scripture, the oldest ones do not include these words. The more recent ones do, which would indicate, as you study carefully the manuscripts, that someone well-intentioned has added these words. Now, is that a problem? No, that's not a problem. Because we, what we're saying is someone is trying to help paint the picture of what this looked like for this guy at this moment he's hearing about Jesus in Isaiah 53. And this Ethiopian official evidenced, I'm convinced, a true heart of repentance. He evidenced a true response of faith in Jesus Christ. And he did so in one way by probably hearing what Philip had shared with him. When Philip says, even Jesus, at the end of his ministry, he's already died. He's been raised from the dead. He speaks to us and says, listen, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've told you. And when he hears that, I think this uh, Ethiopian eunuch said, listen, hey, stop right here. There's some water over there. I'm going to be baptized. In other words, I think that he's saying, I want to obey everything I'm supposed to obey because I am a person who truly has come to faith and I'm trusting Christ and I'm going to obey him and whatever he tells me to do. So they did indeed get baptized. He did indeed stop. He was baptized. And this man, I believe, is a person who now, when you think about it, where's the gospel going now? Here's a fellow who knows the gospel. He's received it. He's believed in Christ. He's now repented of his sins. And he is headed back to the upper Nile area, what is today Sudan and South Sudan. And he is going to be what? A gospel witness in the uttermost part of, at that time, the Roman Empire. That was about the southern border of the Roman Empire. And within one or two generations of this man, in his experience there, some of the greatest Christian thinkers, Christian theologians, Christian apologists who defend the faith, some of the greatest minds in the church are located where? In North Africa. Africans who are defending Christianity against all sorts of heresies, all sorts of, of people who are uh, twisting and distorting what the gospel is, including people like Tertullian and Cyprian and even Augustine. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but to me that excites me to see that this guy may have been the movement of God to bring the gospel into North Africa. Here is this Ethiopian eunuch 
He now has a new status. He's a child of God. He now has a new privileges. He can come unashamedly to the throne of God through Jesus Christ. And he also is a person who has a new identity. Why? Because he is a new creation in Christ Jesus. He's been changed on the inside, and that's showing itself on the outside. Well, that's the first human character. Let's consider the second human character in this text, and that is Philip the Evangelist. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. <laughs> it's important then to understand, remember, that Philip was not what we would call an apostle. Do you remember this? This goes back to Acts chapter 6. Philip was one of the seven men chosen by the church there in Jerusalem, selected as one of these guys who has a man of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And it is Philip who was a deacon. And his responsibility when he first was chosen in leadership was to do what? He waited on the tables of widows in the church, and he was giving them food and resources, making sure their needs were being met. And you say to yourself, that doesn't seem too impressive of his Christian service. But that was a vital proving ground preparing him for what was to come later. So wherever we are, whatever we are doing, it may not seem like it's making a huge impact in the overall kingdom of God, but the Lord is looking for people who are faithful, who are following the Spirit's lead, using the gifts they have in areas that God has assigned to them, and sure enough, that's what he was doing. He had been prepared for a powerful evangelistic ministry by first doing what? Serving behind the scenes. Doing the nobody work. Not seen by anybody, but a handful of widows. And so he left the comfort zone at some point in Jerusalem because of the persecution that came against the church. It is God by his sovereign plan had propelled outward all these different Christians now away from the church in Jerusalem. And that included Philip as he then took the gospel up north into Samaria. He crossed over by the grace of God into an area that had always been separate from his homeland because of all this racial animosity. And what is it that took him over that hurdle of that racial animosity? It was the love of Christ that saved him from his sins by the giving of his son Jesus Christ to die for him and be raised from the dead. And therefore this gospel had changed his life. And here he goes into Samaria and what does he do? He makes the gospel known to them. And what happens? All sorts of people receiving it and coming to faith. And here we see the gospel incredibly expanding into an area where there was tremendous amount of racial tension and hatred for years and years, now finally breaking through. At the time when he's ministering to this thriving new work in Samaria, he's got all these people who've come to faith and many more probably who are now asking questions, going, what in the world is happening among us? And here he is ministering to those new disciples. God at that moment says, all right, I want to redirect you now, Philip. I've got something I want you to do. And that means leave what you're doing now and go away on this southwest road to Egypt from Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but I am convinced that there may have been some head-scratching going on at this point. 
do what? You want me to leave? Do you know how much courage it took to come up here and start preaching to these and sharing the good news with these Samaritans? Do you know what amazing breakthroughs we've seen? Do you know what's going on here? But the Spirit made it clear that Philip was to go away from this newly planted church into a place he didn't know exactly where he was going to go. As one who was full of the Spirit, Philip surrendered. Philip was submissive to God. Philip yielded to the plan that God had for him. And he did not protest. He did not question God when he was told what he was to do. And humanly speaking, he was being told to do something that, humanly speaking, did not make any sense. Didn't add up from a human point of view. Why leave this just begun dynamic work among Samaritans when there are so many who have just now come to faith? The answer was never given. But what? But Philip obeyed anyway. And I would just say this, faith obeys God even when we don't have all the answers or explanations to our satisfaction. Faith obeys God even when we don't have all the answers or explanations. So here's Philip, who doesn't just go reluctantly. He doesn't just go, all right, I guess I'm going to go. I'm supposed to do this stuff. I don't even want to be here. He's not mumbling the whole way like some of us are known to do. But look at verse 30. Philip approaches this opportunity, having heard this man read aloud Isaiah 53, Philip enthusiastically encounters this man. It says he ran up to him. He asks a good question because it was an open-ended question as to whether the man understood what he just read. And at that moment, God swings open the door of opportunity for the gospel. Now, I use that terminology because if you look at Colossians chapter 4, which I would encourage you to meditate on throughout this week, Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul prays this prayer. He says, pray that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of life. Open the door. Give us an opening. Give us an opportunity where the word of Christ can be shared. The crucial part that Philip played in the next part here was that he was able to take the gospel as presented in Isaiah 53 and just preach Christ, proclaim Christ. Jesus Christ is the Holy One, the sinless servant of God, and yet he was despised. It was Jesus, the Holy One, who was rejected. And like a submissive, sacrificial lamb, Jesus laid down his life for sinners like you and like me. And he began with Isaiah 53. We read in, further in the text, if you look at verse 35 of Acts chapter 8, you'll notice that no doubt 
Philip started with Isaiah 53, but he went elsewhere. And they didn't have the New Testament written at that time, so he's going to take other scriptures from the Old Testament, and he is going to what? Beginning from this scripture, he preached or proclaimed or explained Christ to this man. That's sort of what Jesus did, isn't it? On the road of Emmaus, isn't it interesting? There's another road experience. Jesus is making his way down a road to Emmaus after the resurrection, and he's encountering these people who are forlorn and discouraged and depressed and can't make sense of anything. In Luke 24, what does he do? He explains how Christ is the real person being described and pointed to in the Old Testament. And the New Testament apostles, there's no question they were unanimous in their agreement that when you read Isaiah 53, it clearly is referring to Jesus Christ. There's no question, and there's many of them that speak of it. There is Matthew and John and Luke and Peter and Paul all speak of quoting Isaiah 53 in their writings, pointing to Christ. Now let me ask you, if, if Philip is able to take Scripture that he had at the time and able to point people to Christ, the question then comes, are you able to take a portion of Scripture and use it to point people to Christ? Have you seen Christ as really the primary character in all the different pages of Scripture, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament? It's either pointing to Christ or pointing back to Christ and what he's done. How well are you prepared to explain the good news of eternal life through Jesus Christ? If you have your sermon notes there in your bulletin, if you got it in front of you, if you don't, just grab it for a second there. If you look on the back side of that insert, I have included in that insert a brief outline in which the gospel is summarized helpfully for us by Greg Gilbert. Greg Gilbert is the author of the book, What is the Gospel? Put out again by Nine Marks Books, which are quite helpful for us. And our growth group has just finished reading this, and you can use four different uh, main hooks, if you will, where you anchor some key thoughts. You describe who is God, and he's got some important points. He's a holy God, he's the creator, he's loving, and yet he will not tolerate sin. And, and who is man? Well, man is a person who has made the image of God, and we are sinners who have broken God's laws, and we are a person, people who are rebelling against God in his ways. We are separated from God, and we are gonna be held responsible and accountable to God, and therefore there's a penalty for our rebellion that we must face. And then if you look at Christ, the, th the third key point of the gospel outline is the way to God, provided through God as one who died for us and who, with whom we receive the gift of eternal life by placing our faith in him. It is the grace, God graciously provides a substitute for us. He's the one who lived a perfect life. He's the one who has died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead so that we might know for sure there is full forgiveness of sin. And then the last one is to respond, to encourage people to respond and to call them to respond to what we've presented to them. Everyone must repent. Everyone must believe in Jesus Christ. And those are the two essential responses to the gospel. Now, I don't know if you know 
that kind of an outline. You're prepared and you're able to, to share that at any given moment, but that's something you ought to study up on if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Then not only is it for your benefit to meditate on that, to be reminded of the greatness of the truth of the gospel, but to be prepared to share it with someone else. And you, you don't always have your Bible in front of you. You don't always have something that you can necessarily explain it with something in writing. It's good to have it right in your heart and mind, ready at that moment never knowing when God's going to provide someone in your path who's asking those amazing questions. What does this mean? Philip was prepared. Philip was available. Philip was surrendered. He was humble. He was used by God to guide other people into the scriptures and then point them in the scriptures to the wondrous Savior in whom we find eternal life. Here is Philip whose heart had been changed and transformed by the gospel so that he now had a love for lost people that made him much more available to minister to them, no matter who they were, whether it was a hated enemy, former enemy, whether it was a race, member of the racial minority, whether it was a person who was an arrogant magician who is searching for greatness in all the wrong places, or even a, a, a sort of a, a religious rich official that he meets while he's traveling. It doesn't make who, difference who it is. He is willing and prepared to point them to Christ. Here's a man who was on mission for Christ every day and in everywhere he went. I'd like to commend to you this quote uh, came across in my reading this past week. He says, divine appointments are awaiting us if we are obedient to God's leading. You don't have any idea whose path you're going to cross if you're following Christ and you're on mission every day. You see, God could have sent, instead of getting Philip to make all these changes, with the angels coming and trying to get him to do all these things, it could have used what? Well, you could have the angels assigned to permanently be the ones who are supernaturally proclaiming the gospel of Christ in a very far and far-reaching way. And, but God has done what? No, he's chosen not to make the angels his ambassadors. He has chosen to delegate the gospel ministry to his former enemies, to those who are in the church of Jesus Christ. He has chosen to make known his gospel appeal to those who formerly rebelled against him. And we have now been given the privilege of being ambassadors of Jesus Christ, saying to everyone, be reconciled to God. We call unsaved people to God, and we do so as testimonies, as trophies of his grace. People who are weak and broken and who have nothing to brag about, but we make our boast in Christ for all to see. And, and guess what? Luke is going to hammer that home in the next chapter. I mean, he's getting ready to hit a home run on that principle in chapter 9 of Acts when he calls Saul clearly as the most unlikely ambassador for the gospel. We're coming to that next week. Let's get to our second point real quickly here, and that's this. If we think about the divine character, there's the human characters. We have the, the rich traveling man from Ethiopia, and we have Philip. Now we have the divine character, and we have our sovereign triune God seeking and saving the lost. God who is sovereign seeks and saves the lost. As I've read and reread 
this passage here in Acts chapter 8, I'm reminded of the passage in two chapters that come uh, after Isaiah 53. And if you take a moment, would you turn there in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 55? Isaiah 55. This is a familiar text. I, I would imagine many of you have heard it read and are uh, quite familiar with it. But I wanted, want you to think about this because what I'm thinking about here is the effectiveness of inspiration. The effectiveness of inspiration. L listen to what God says here in Isaiah 55. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not bread and your wages on what does not satisfy? That is so true of unsaved people. We're calling them to come to Christ where you find true satisfaction. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Isn't that an interesting way of describing what the gospel is? Delighting yourself in abundance. The abundance of delight in God. Skip down to verse 6. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, which, by which, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. What is my point here? It is through the divine work of inspiration. God revealed himself in the scriptures. In the pages of scripture, God says, I am going to make myself known in the word of God. And that word of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are in the, in the adventure of evangelism. God's word never returns empty. It accomplishes wonderful things. It accomplishes what God intends. I'm reminded of a testimony of my English professor when I was in college. And this woman, uh, again, I'm not trying to find fault with her, but I think she had actually damaged her eyes because she read so much. Her goal when she landed at the Ohio State University as an unbelieving person, she said, my goal is to read all the books in the first floor of all the stacks in Ohio State University library. And so she started with the first one and she started making her way down. And she read so much, again, seriously, she, her eyes were damaged and she had huge Coke bottle glasses, I think, by the time I was a student of hers. But anyway, until she came to a copy of the scriptures, the Bible, in the Ohio State University Library. She starts reading this book. And she is just amazed. 
her life begins to now go into a way in which it totally turns in the direction of her life. She begins to humble herself and understand and see things she's never understood before. And through reading of the scripture, she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And I go back and say to myself, that was a powerful illustration to me of the God's word never returns empty. It's powerful. And so when we are sharing our faith, let's be confident in the saving, effective power of the word of God to change lives. 2 Timothy chapter th- uh, 3, verse 15. Uh, I've got to keep moving here. I want to look at this. Uh, secondly, under the fact of God as a player here in this whole process of evangelism, there is a power of regeneration that God has. Only God can change a heart. Only God can take a heart of stone that is indifferent to spiritual things. Only he can take a heart of stone and transform it into a heart of flesh. Only God can quicken those who are dead in their sins. Like the wind that blows when and where it will, God sovereignly acts in salvation. And unless God begins that process, it will never take place in a person's heart and life. That's what God, Jesus was saying to Nicodemus. You must be born again, which means God needs to do a work in your heart. Only God can make someone born again through the living and abiding word of God. You write down 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, and you'll see that that's true. Third point I want to make here is that there is grace. The grace of reconciliation is found in God in this process or the mystery of evangelism. Only God can remove this wall of offenses that gets built up because of our sin. Only God through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, can break down those barriers. The barriers of enmity that we have constructed over time by all of our rebellious deeds and thoughts. And only Jesus can establish true peace between two parties who at one time were not able to be reconciled. They were apart from each other, at enmity against each other. It is only Jesus who can establish peace between God and a sinful people. Between people who are filled with racial hatred for each other, he is only one who can bring about the peace between people who are selfish, people who are offended, have offended each other again and again. And how does he do this? Because God the Father made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become, through the gospel, the righteousness of God in him. Only a gracious, forgiving God can make his entreaty through his former enemies, urging others to be reconciled to God. And lastly, and I could keep going here, but just stay with me here. I want us to consider, lastly, the mystery of providence. The mystery of providence. You see, God, according to his purpose... In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we read, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Not some things, not most things, not a few things, but all things. In other words, God is sovereign over everything. And I've given you a quote there from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Cheer up, Christian. Things are not left to chance. No blind fate rules the world. God has purposes, and those purposes are fulfilled. God has plans, and those plans are wise and never can be dislocated. 
You see, in this account in, in Acts chapter 8, God directed his servant Philip the evangelist to a religious, unregenerate person who was, who was asking at that time all the right questions. He was prepared. The Spirit of God had been working in his life already. And God sovereignly had been working in this Ethiopian man's life. It was God who was at work in Philip's life who had then asked that key question. And both divine sovereignty and human responsibility are found in this text and throughout all of Scripture. We'll never understand all the intricacies of God's providential leading. We're never going to understand how it all figures itself out in the process of personal evangelism, but they always work hand in hand. You can count on it. You can rest in God's sovereign grace. Let me just give you two verses from the book of Acts that to me make me realize that God is the one who is bringing people to himself. He does it through people, it's true, but God is the one who is doing it. Notice this, Acts chapter 13, verses 48 and 49. Acts 13, 48, 49. There we read, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who does the appointing there? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Well, who spread the word of the Lord? The believers. Well, who was doing the appointing unto eternal life? God. You see both of those things in that one text. And then I'd like to suggest another one, Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, where we read, this is for Paul in Corinth, and things have gotten out of hand there, and there's lots of ruckus going on. And so the Lord makes it clear to Paul. He says, go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. What's he saying? He says, I have many people who I have are, are the chosen ones. that I, They will come to faith. I, you're going to present the gospel to them, and they are going to come into the kingdom. You see both of those going on. It's Paul who must speak. It's God who is at work drawing people to himself. Now, don't try to understand it completely because you'll never understand all of those intricacies completely, the, 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 that careful balance of truths. But pray earnestly in asking the Lord to open for a door for you to have an opportunity to speak the gospel to someone this week. Prepare yourself diligently to prepare the gospel. Know the word of God and how to have that kind of outline in your mind so you know how to explain the gospels to someone. And then trust God to lead you. And then what? Go on speaking and do not be silent. Look at the quote I have at the end there, again by Pastor Hughes. God's sovereign work plus man's obedience bring the touch of God to needy human lives. Uh, last fall, October the 4th, I'll never forget the date, in 2015, I suffered a damage, uh, some severe damage to my aorta, and I almost died, and I'm taken by ambulance to the hospital, and never was it ever part of my plan, it was the day after a wedding I attended, it was a Sunday, never it was a part of my plan to be spending time in the hospital there in New Orleans. But toward the latter part of that day, I find myself lying in a hospital bed in the ICU unit. And here is this young woman coming to me, and she's saying, uh, well, I'm your nurse for the day. My name is Angela. 
And so she says, uh, you've really been through a lot here. And I said, yes, I never thought I'd be here. But, you know, I know that my life was in God's hands. I began to just sort of share my confidence that I knew God was in control. And come to find out Angela was just taking the first baby step as a believer. And when she heard I was a pastor and she heard me started quoting scripture to her, she said, hold it right there. She went and got her other nurse who was also on duty that time. She said, you got to come in here. That was her friend who had been witnessing to her for the longest time. She says, this guy is in my room at the ICU. Isn't it amazing how God has done this? She began to see this was clearly the hand of God in bringing our two paths together. And so I just shared what I could think off the top of my head. I had no Bible with me. I had nothing. And uh, so I'm just sharing the scriptures with her, and she's just writing them down. Oh, I'm going to go look this up when I get home. Now, could I have orchestrated that? No. But who brought that about? God brought that about. And it's amazing to see what happens when we are trusting God and faithful to obey him. Speak up and don't be silent, but let God truly be at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we truly stand amazed when we think of the sovereign ways you work. Lord, nobody can thwart your plans. Your plans and purposes will go forward. But we also know that you use ordinary people like us who are, sometimes get afraid, sometimes we mess up, sometimes we stumble over our words, or sometimes we miss opportunities and don't speak up when we should. But Lord, you have chosen and delegated to us the privilege of being gospel ministers. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us, even this week. Help us to be vigilant, help us to be alert and prepared and ready to share the good news of Christ and what you've been doing in our life and who you are and the wonders of what it means to know Jesus Christ. Lord, give us those kinds of encounters, we pray with people that you've already begun to work in their hearts. Use us, Lord, to be those who bring the good news to somebody who's desperately looking for that wonderful gift of eternal life and knowing Jesus Christ personally. And help us, Lord, to be faithful. Times that we share your word, it looks like it doesn't make a difference in that person's life and they reject it. Help us to be confident, Lord, that your word does not return empty to you. It accomplishes what you see fit to do. Lord, thank you that we can be useful to you in the wonderful prospect of making the gospel known to people far and wide in our world and around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.